Thank you, Kevin, for the reading, and thank you, Lance, for the prayers. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Brenda's Good Morning Church. It's great to be with you today. Happy Mid-Autumn Festival. Who loves mooncakes out there? All right, not as many hands as I thought. I love mooncakes. Something about salted egg yolk is so good. Um, and we've been here 16 years, so it's easy to get mooncakes. Um, but when we lived in LA, we would also try to, you know, sort of celebrate mid-autumn, but not a lot of stores had mooncakes. So I made my way to the closest 99 Ranch. The problem was it was the day of mid-autumn festival. And there was like a flurry of activity around the table. Um, these Chinese older women were all fighting for like the best mooncakes. And I'm like fighting my way and just trying to grab one tin at least. I can't read what's exactly in them, hoping I got the right one and left with my prize and uh, enjoyed mooncakes later that night. I think I'm the only one in the family that likes them. So anyway, it's good to be here with you on this holiday weekend. We continue in Revelation this important but challenging book. It's a rich book, and if you've missed one of them um, in this series, this is number three in Revelation, I'd encourage you to go back because they're all linked together, and it's hard to understand one without the other. As we have been looking, how do we understand this book, its genre? What type of literature is Revelation? There's not too many places in the Bible that have this type of literature, and that first one is apocalyptic. This word that we get revelation from, this unveiling word, this is very symbolic literature. Um, so that's one thing we have to understand. It's also prophetic. It's a call to faithfulness. It's not a call to begin to predict, to go to our calendars and say, this must be the end times. Rather, a call to faithfulness. And finally, it's a letter. It would have been understood by the original audience. And so that's what we want to dig into. What did it mean to the original audience? Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, lifts up this interpretive strategy. What is the lens we want to look at as we understand this book? And first and foremost, it's about the lamb, the lamb that was slain. The lamb is a victorious, not through destroying God's enemies, but through covering himself with his own blood, dying for his enemies. It's also written to the first century using first century techniques to a first century audience, and it's the cult of faithfulness and public worship. Now, this book has been in the church the last 2,000 years, and it's been especially important during times of uncertainty, during times of war, during times of persecution, during times of things being unsettled which I think is why it's an important book for this time. Whether it's climate change or wars or political situations, this book was written to give hope and comfort during difficult times. And so as we find ourselves, and wherever you might be um, today, um, I hope this book brings you hope. Now, it's a difficult book to tackle. It's challenging. There are different interpretations, and you might not agree with the interpretation that I'm bringing, but that's okay. The point is, is it's not our interpretation that holds us together. It's Jesus Christ at the center, and so that will be our center point as we dig through this book. A quick recap. Chapter one was the revelation of Jesus. Chapters two and three are about these actual seven churches, letters to these seven churches that John is writing to. Chapter four, we get to this throne room. 
Now, the early church under Nero had faced a lot of persecution. Domitian is now the Caesar, and persecution isn't as bad, but it's beginning to ramp up. This is who John is writing to. He's writing to help them to be faithful in a challenging time, to bring them comfort, to bring them hope. So let's step back. And what was the political situation during this time? Well, about 40 years before that, Rome was in the midst of a civil war. There were two factions that there was a battle between, Octavian from Italy and Mark Antony from Egypt. The areas that John is writing to in Asia Minor were supporting Mark Antony. And guess what happens? Mark Antony loses. Octavian wins. This area that Paul is writing to was going out of their way to say, hey, we got behind the wrong guy. We're so sorry. We support you, Octavian, as emperor. They want to make sure he knows that they are in support of him. But Octavian, his gift to the empire was this peace, Pax Romana, this Roman peace. Now, the Roman Empire achieved their peace through oppression, through slaughter, through war. And so he, he was worshipped as a god. He was worshipped. There were altars to him. And let me show you one of these here. This is an altar, and Octavian is called the one to be worshipped. Caesar. Now, Caesar... Octavian later took on the term Augustus, and Augustus means one to be worshipped, or divis, or dos, God himself. So this is Octavian, that Caesar. After Octavian, we have Nero, who oppressed the church. He erected a 120-foot statue to himself and declared absolute worship and obedience to him. And Paul references Nero, Nero in 2 Thessalonians 2 to 3. There were temples built to worship the Caesars. They were worshiped as gods. Politics was not separate from worship. These things are overlapped in this time. You couldn't sort of distinguish them. And so John is writing to them to help them navigate this. Now, during their current reign, while John is writing, Domitian is the Caesar. And we're going to talk about Domitian in a couple of weeks. Um, but like I said, this area of the Asian minor here was supporting the guy who lost. And so they were going out of their way to show that actually they're in favor of the new ruler. We find this poem um, that's inscribed in a stone tablet, and this is the English translation of it, that the birthday of the god Augustus, this is Octavian, was the beginning of the good news for the world. Good news. This is the same word that we use in Mark 1, 1. But we proclaim a different bringer of that good news. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is a threat. This is a challenge to the political empire to say, you know, you're worshiping the Caesar as Lord. You think he is bringing the good news. Actually, let me tell you about one who is actually bringing the good news. And we see the angels bring this good news to the shepherds out in a field, telling of the one who is bringing good news. These seven cities that John is writing to were immersed in the imperial cult. They were immersed in worshiping him as gods. They, if you were a citizen, if you were a part of this, you couldn't 
easily separate yourself from this. It's where business deals were done. The food was sacrificed to the idols. It was your whole culture was geared around this. Now, we'll hear more about this. John calls it Babylon or Rome, but Babylon is really a fill-in for any systemic, any system that is claiming centrality in the universe, claiming centrality in our worlds, claiming centrality in our lives. We have a lot of religious freedom here in Hong Kong, but we also have things that are claiming centrality in our lives that are not God. Could be economics, could be education, could be politics. The systems that we find ourselves in that are opposed to the way God invites us into leading. Might is right. Profit is king. My way is the best way. What are the things in your lives, in your worlds, that are claiming centrality? What are the things you find yourself clinging to? What are the things you're afraid of losing? As an international church, we're blessed with people from all over the world, coming from different cultures and different places. Many of us have lived in multiple places. And there's perspective that's given when you've been in different cultures and different places. You can then see maybe the culture that you grew up in, the place that you came from with new eyes. I know coming here was allowed me to reflect back on some of the things in the U.S. that were just so hard to see when you're immersed in it. You can begin to appreciate and critique things about your culture that are good or not so good. And as an international church, we get to be community together, working through those things, helping each other to grow closer to God. Maybe it's not cultural things that are at the center of your world. Maybe it's the family you grew up in. For me, finances were a central part of my upbringing and actually the chaotic environment around finances. My parents did not budget well. <laughs> they did not save. And there was always this fighting about enough money to pay the bills. From the power being cut off to the trash not being picked up, there was always fighting between my mom and my dad. And I made a vow to myself, I never want to fight about money in my marriage. And that's not such a bad thing. But what it led to for me was to actually put more trust in my finances than in God. Now, it's good to plan. It's good to have a budget. But that vow early on for me became something that I had to loosen my grip on and really hand over to God and continue to learn to do that. What is at the center of your life? See, Revelation is condemning any system that is counter to God's purposes in this world. What was on the mind of these seven churches? Can I worship Caesar and worship Jesus? Can I say Jesus is Lord and then say Caesar is Lord? John writes into this. This is his challenge to remain faithful to these early believers. Let's unpack the passage that Kevin read for us today. One thing that's helpful, if you're reading through, and I would encourage you to read through all of Revelation, we have a reading plan uh, that you can click into online. 
is you'll see that sometimes he hears things and sometimes he sees things. After this, I looked. So some of what he is reporting to us are things that he has seen, and some of it then I heard. So just keep that in mind because it's important. It gives us important clues as we go through. Verse 2, there was a throne in heaven, and someone was sitting on it. Someone sitting on it is a very Jewish way of thinking about God. Not naming God as Yahweh, but that's what everybody knew who was sitting on the throne. And this would have been such good news to these seven churches. They were small in number, insignificant compared to Rome's empire and might and power, insignificant to any sort of way of resisting this with military or strength. And here, John is letting them know, you look up and the throne, Caesar is not on the throne. God is on the throne. And he is on the throne today, church. Whatever might be at the center of your life, know that God is at the center and he wants to be at the center. Now, John describes this throne room and the original audience would have recognized Oh, this sounds like a lot like Caesar's throne room. They would have immediately plugged into the fact that he's going after these claims from Rome himself. This throne room helps us to see who is really at the center. Scott McKnight in his book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, says it this way. God is on the throne. Caesar is not. Babylon will go down. And someday justice will be established in the new Jerusalem. So... We're going to, I want to give you a little bit of a preview, because if you're reading along, we're going to get to three judgments in Revelation. And there's the judgment of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And it's pretty wild writing, very symbolic writing. And so to preview this, these judgments are a warning. They're a discipline. They're a call to be faithful. See, at the end of Revelation, we'll see around the throne, we'll see every tribe and every nation. But we have a long ways in Revelation before we get there. The thing about these seven judgments, they don't bring people to repentance. They are ineffective in actually working. They're symbolic of many things, but primarily the plagues that are visited upon Egypt and the Pharaoh. Remember all of the plagues that were brought in? Please let our people go. And do they work? They don't change Pharaoh's heart. Actually, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, and we don't see these judgments actually changing people's hearts at all. But what does bring everybody to the throne, every nation, every tribe? It's the lamb. Not the lamb covered in his enemy's blood, but covered in his own the lamb and his faithful followers, those martyred witnesses, those who instead of taking up the sword took up self-sacrifice and love, those following the lamb's example of how to love your enemies instead of trying to defeat them. This is what brings everybody to the throne. Now we're gonna get to that. Not yet. We've got a lot of chapters to go. Let's carry on in chapter 4. 
we get this continued description of the throne room. And I love this, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This would have been a reminder to the audience of God's covenant with Noah. Before we get to these judgments, before we get to these disciplines, we get this reminder of God's love for his people and for his world. That's the starting point we have here. His unfailing love and his promises to the people of the earth. Verse 4, the 24 elders. Who are these people? Now, there's a couple of explanation. One is the, the Caesar himself would have had 24 guards around his throne. That's sort of one explanation. But I think the better explanation is in the temple, the priests would be on 24-hour rotations. And they're representing this idea of continuous worship around the throne. I think that more fits with what John is speaking into because the next verses lead us into this worship of God. Now, we've hit the seven spirits in the past. And again, seven is this idea of completeness. This seven is like sevenfold. It's not seven different spirits. It's God's spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we see similar sort of images coming up in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, Zechariah, Hosea. If you want any of these references, um, see me after and I can send you more notes. Um, Fun thing or challenging thing about this series is I always have about three times the content that I can actually present. There's a lot going on underneath the surface. Let's continue with 6a. There is this sea of glass. And again, this is a reference in Ezekiel, but also to Genesis, to creation, to this idea of God's creating the sea, bringing calm to the chaos. But it's also John looking ahead to new creation, of creation restored, of what God will do. And then we start to get to some imagery that you're maybe thinking, okay, this is the good stuff in Revelation. What the heck do this, does this mean? We get these four living creatures, and, and John doesn't quite have the right words. He says they're like this. They're like a lion, like an ox, like a face of a man, like a flying eagle. This would have been sort of the lion, the king of the beast. The ox is sort of the king of domesticated animals. The eagle sort of the king of the skies. We get this representation of creation worshiping God everything in creation coming to God. Early Christians um, thought of these four creatures as actually the writers of the four gospels. Uh, Matthew as the human face, Mark as the lion, Luke as the ox, and John the eagle. So you'll see sometimes in in statues and, and things in religious art, you'll see these represented that way as well. But really, I think what John is saying is the whole of the created cosmos is here to worship God. And we see that they're there around the clock. They have these six wings. This is like references to the seraphim in the Old Testament, this worship at the tabernacle that God talks about. And they have eyes all around, even under the wings. When you were growing up, did you ever think of like your parents having eyes on the back of their head, like they always caught you? And... We tried to give our kids that impression uh, when they were little. Like, we will see you if you mess up. And you were so glad you caught them into something they had no idea that you knew about, right? Um, But this isn't so much to create fear. This is God sees everything. Nothing goes without him noticing it. 
He is involved and he's engaged in this world. And these eyes are full of eyes, John says, a couple of times. We also see references to this back in Ezekiel as well. Creation simply worships God. See, John is seen up in heaven in this throne room how things are supposed to be here. He's seeing this worship, everything worshiping God. And that's supposed to be here. And we get to the end of Revelation and we finally see that coming, that heaven and earth completely overlapping, but it's not there yet. We continue into verse 9. What do these 24 elders do? They lay their crowns before the throne. They lay their crowns before their throne. They offer their allegiance. They're there to worship and to do God's bidding. And they say this, you are worthy. For you created all things. He is worthy to be praised. God is on his throne. What does that mean? God is sovereign, that he is the ultimate authority over the entire universe. This would have been such good news to the people this marginalized people, this ragtag group who was following Jesus in the midst of this powerful Roman empire. And then they hear that God is on the throne. He is sovereign. That is good news, church. Well, we're not in Rome, but every place has its Babylon. What would you say are things that are on the throne in Hong Kong. And this is where we get to have audience participation. What are things that are on the throne here? What are things that are central? What are things that are most important in our city? And just call them out. Money. Money. Mm-hmm. Status. What else? Power. Success, keeping face, yeah, education, all of these things influence us. And this is the thing with Babylon, right? It's the world that's around you. It's where the river is taking you. It's not easy to identify it sometimes or to resist it. John also challenges the churches. What is on the throne of our church? What is at the center of it? We have tried to be so clear at community that Jesus Christ is at the center. He is on the throne. He is why we gather and he is what holds us together as his followers. Jesus Christ, center And now to make it very personal, what is on the throne in your life? And you don't have to call these ones out. But what I want you to do is to see the papers that are on the chair. And if you need a pen or paper, um, just lift up your hand. The ushers will bring you pens. um, Because the worship team is going to play. And... While they're playing, reflect on what has taken central part in your life. What is on your throne? 
Maybe it's worries about the climate. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's politics, the stock market. Maybe it's fears. Maybe it's control. Maybe you are on the throne in your life. What is centering your life, pulling you away from Christ and not towards him? What do you find directly in your life, your thoughts, your actions, your concerns? Philip Yancey uh, was doing a podcast this last week, and I was listening to him. He's doing a revision of and what's so amazing about grace. And he was talking about 1 Corinthians 13. And he said, love drives out fear. But he also said the opposite is true. Fear can drive away love. And I think that's true. What is on the throne in your life? Revelation was written to bring hope. It was a call to be faithful. Not a wishful thinking kind of hope, but a hope rooted in Jesus Christ himself that he is with them and he is with us, that ultimate victory will be his. We can trust God while living in Babylon. And that's the second question I want you to reflect on is how does God being on the throne give you hope? And maybe if you're like me, God starts the day on the throne. <laughs> But at some point, my own concerns, my own worries, my own challenges take center place and, and God is hard to find in the midst of chaos. But when he is there, when your mind and heart are like, God, you are at the center, you are sovereign. What does that do for you? What does that do for your, for your body, for the way you engage and react? What does it do to your breathing? What does it do to your perspective? Because we worship a God that's on the throne and he wants to make a difference in our lives today, church, today and this week. When God is on the throne with my finances, I hold them open, open-handed. God, all I have is from you. How do I steward these well? When God is on the throne and I am not, it frees me to love instead of fear. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are on the throne, that you desire to be at the center. You are the center of the universe, whether we recognize it or not. But when we're able to walk in that truth, God, it changes how we live. It changes how we treat people. It changes how we love, which is the whole point. God, we come to this table of communion. It's an act of resistance where we say, Jesus, you are Lord and I need your grace. Babylon is not king. You are king and I need you. We lift this all up to you, Jesus, in your name.